Welcome to another episode of Liberty Talk, brought to you by the Wyoming Liberty Group. We are your hosts, Cassie and Mandy, and on today's episode, we will be discussing our favorite topic, education. Today, we'll focus on what a classical education really means and how it compares to the education programs of today. Our guest today is Jeremy Wayne Tate. He is the CEO of the Classic Learning Test. He holds a bachelor's degree from Louisiana State University and a master's from Reformed Theological Seminary. After working as a college counselor and admissions test prep consultant, he founded Classic Learning Initiatives in 2015. He then developed what is known as the CLT, or Classic Learning Test. This is an alternative to the commonly known SAT or ACT test. Jeremy, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks Cassie, thank you Mandy. Glad to be here. Great. Well, let's jump right into it. First, we want to hear all about your personal story and your background. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I love the West Coast. I know y'all are in Wyoming. I actually grew up in Beaverton, Oregon. Uh, I know Portland is going through some tough times right now, so I've been, been following that. But I, I think the West Coast is still kind of in my blood. I grew up with a great view of Mount Hood. Uh, my dad was a career ATF agent. Uh, he was actually at Waco. He was at Ruby Ridge in, in Idaho. Uh, so I grew up, uh, sister is an ATF agent as well. And uh, then went to college at Louisiana State University. Uh, he'd been transferred down as the ASAC of New Orleans. And then for uh, graduate school, I actually went to seminary to become uh, a pastor. And in my own bizarre theological journey, I ended up becoming somebody who went to a Calvinist seminary and graduated a Roman Catholic. But I always loved talking theology and church history and all that good stuff as well. Uh, but one of the things that happened to me in seminary was that I, I got a really good sense of how uh, previous generations had been educated. Uh, and it really raised awareness for how different what we're currently doing is uh, than pretty much every generation before us. And, um, and so that, that is really kind of the initial seed in what became kind of a, new, a, a vision for education um, that has, has gave birth to the classic learning test, which has really been my life's work for the past five years. So I'd love to know first what drew you to seminary. Yeah, you know, I was a uh, typical kind of hoodlum teenager, and uh, I went to, to Young Life Camp, uh, and it was a really transformative kind of one weekend experience, you know, for me, and met my wife now, you know, high school sweethearts from that trip on, and um, yeah, heard about, about Jesus for the first time, and, and it was, I uh, had a conversion, and kind of from that moment on, I was very, I never read books before that really conversion moment, that camp, and I became obsessive with reading, especially C.S. Lewis. Chesterton, um, and you know, it's very much connected to the work that I do now uh, as well. But um, yeah, I wanted to to become a pastor. Uh, it was really the end of the day why I went to seminary. So, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with your work or even the classic learning test generally, can you walk us through what it is and why it's different, why it's needed? Yes, and if you're, if you're tuned in and you're like, oh, no, we're going to talk about standardized testing, I'm going to tune out. Uh, it, it sounds at the surface level like it's the most boring topic under the sun, but when you start to dig a little bit deeper, it's fascinating. Um, standardized testing in many ways kind of controls American education. Uh, the College Board, ACT, and Pearson, these are absolute powerhouses that drive national curriculum. Just to give you kind of an example of what I'm talking about, you know, if you imagine for just a second, you know, that SAT and ACT required students to uh, start taking a, a French proficiency section of the SAT or ACT, 
every student in America would start taking French, right? These tests are required now at a lot of, of high schools as a graduation requirement. So they exert tremendous uh, influence over what actually happens in the classroom. And so part of the idea with CLT is looking back is, is I think we're in the midst of a crisis in education right now. I think it's very much connected to the crisis that's happening uh, in terms of civil unrest in America. And we're saying, well, what did they used to do for education? And in particular, what was the aim? What was the goal of education historically? And the goal was never college and career readiness. The goal was always uh, to make someone more human. It was to pass on tradition and culture and wisdom from one generation to the next. And, uh, and that view of education now actually sounds strange to many career educators, even you know, career administrators and bureaucrats who've been in education for a long time. When we start talking about what was normative for every other generation, sometimes they act like they've never heard it before at all. Uh, and that, that's how kind of crazy the disconnect is right now. So we're trying to get back to an education that's based on first things. And when we say first things, we mean the things that matter most. And so CLT wants to encourage students to read great literature, great philosophy, uh, not things that are just connected to work, but really the things that are connected to, to what you do when you're not at work. I love that. You, you mentioned the crisis in education, and I'm curious. I mean, we all have our own thoughts in our head, I think, about what that means. But I'm curious to see what you think about that. Yeah, you know, a, a stat that I saw when I, when I first started getting on Twitter, which was January, kind of made a very self-conscious decision to break into this, what I think is often a very polarizing, nasty arena, but it's a good way to get a message out there. I, I stumbled upon an NBC article that was making a case that two-thirds of Americans cannot pass a U.S. citizenship test. Two-thirds. But it's actually worse than that. 74% of Americans that are over 65 can pass. But for the group that's under 45, the group that also happens to be the most educated demographic in terms of formal, formal schooling, only 19% can pass. And so you've got to raise a question. This isn't a right-left thing. It's like, what is happening in American education where only 19% of Americans under 45 can pass a basic citizenship test? And this is very much connected to, I think, the civil unrest is that People, you can't love what you don't know. People don't know how America is supposed to be running and working in the first place. So it is absolutely a crisis. Uh, and, and the argument that CLT is making is, look, it's not enough to give kids a civics class tacked onto modern progressive secular education. The problem is that we're totally disconnected from the type of education that was formative to America's founding fathers. They were deeply rooted in the classical tradition, as was everyone after them until the turn of the 20th century. Um, and so I think at CLT, we want people to get back to that kind of education that at the end of the day is based on the great books, the great books that, uh, of the Western canon as well. But, you know, it's funny, you say that right now in the current cultural ethos on most college campuses, and people think you're a radical for simply saying what everybody believed in every previous generation uh, about <laughs> education. And don't you think there's almost a culture that I heard you say, you know, people are more educated now, but I think there's almost a culture of indoctrination over education. Like the fact that people go to school for longer periods of time doesn't necessarily mean at all that they're more educated is kind of what I'm hearing you say, right? Uh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the number of great Americans that had zero formal schooling, which is pretty much the case for Abigail Adams, certainly Ben Franklin, Lincoln. Uh, Frederick, Frederick 
all of these all intellectual of these giants, giants, they were, um, you know, self-taught. And uh, you wonder what would have happened to any of them if you stuck them in uh, a government school for 12 years? Would they have been even better or would their spirit have been crushed? Would they have, you know, would we even know their names? Um, yeah. And you said government school. What do you think about, you know, the free market and how that intertwines in with what education can do? Yeah, you know, my own experience, I graduated in 2004. I taught for three years before seminary in inner city New York, you know, and it, it, was, it was really formative the way it changed my views about education uh, entirely. In fact, I, when I think back about my time at LSU, nobody ever said uh, the family is the most important thing and a student's ability to learn and to do their homework and to come prepared. I didn't hear that hardly at all, but it didn't take me very long in the classroom to realize, wait a minute, all the students that are doing well for the most part have highly engaged parents especially highly engaged fathers you know and this is a, a school 100 percent minority is a very poor community that uh we were working in so um and part of the problem there is you have an education system where 60 percent of the dollars go to support the bureaucracy 40 percent funds the education so not only do you have underpaid teachers the people who are actually doing the heavy lifting but you also don't have a, a school choice that would eliminate inefficiencies uh, and create the kind of competition. And, you know, it's funny, uh, there's this, this misconception out there that private schools are better, are they're elite because they just have more money. It is, that, that is demonstrably false. Private schools actually operate on average with a smaller budget than public schools do. Um, they're actually better often because they are in competition. You know, when I left the public school arena, went to a Catholic school for the first time, I experienced this. They know their families can go somewhere else. They're, they're there serving families uh, with a, a humility that is born out of them knowing the kids can go somewhere else. So I, I think school choice really is, it, it's a civil rights issue at this point. And the way that this issue has been, has grown in support, uh, especially since COVID. I mean, it's one of the, the silver linings of COVID is that people are realizing what this is. And now across the political aisle more and more, um, and supporting it. You know, I think it's, it's a no-brainer. And you mentioned, you know, some teachers that aren't being paid probably what they should because that money is more in the bureaucracy. But another thing I thought of, you know, when you were talking about how standardized testing specifically drives the curriculum, I've spoken with a lot of teachers that are frustrated by that. Um, the fact that they're not as free to teach more literature or more of these subjects that can grow the mind but aren't being tested right they face a yeah. lot of pressure from bureaucracy what's your take on that that's a great point you know so we we don't want to affirm say this is a good or bad thing we're just saying it's a reality thing that high stakes tests tend to drive what happens in the classroom we can probably debate all day if that's a good or a bad thing but we're saying if that's already the case then the tests themselves need to point to enduring ideas they need to put students in front of texts that are worthy of their time and attention. Um, and so at CLT, you know, we wanna put students in front of the authors, the thinkers that have most influenced society and culture. So that could be, you know, it could be actually Karl Marx, it could be Nietzsche, it could be C.S. Lewis or Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Flannery O'Connor. It's actually a pretty wide spectrum. People are really surprised when they see the CLT author bank is that it's not at all just like you know, conservative uh, Christians, you know, or something. 
Um, that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're saying, and this is very different than SAT or ACT. I mean, both of these companies actually have a sensitivity committee where if a text is said to be offensive to any student for any reason, then it gets removed. Um, and then what they're left with after this process is text that no student would ever read unless they were taking their test. And so it sort of just injects this meaningless. But if students know, okay, on the test that matters most, I'm gonna have to read and demonstrate my ability to understand Jefferson, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr. That's gonna start to, that's gonna put students in front of the right kinds of texts as well. And so, you know, when we make this case, we always say CLT is the easiest sell in the world in terms of convincing people why we're doing, but it's not a quick sell and that it takes 10 or 20 minutes to sit down with somebody and say, look, here's how this all works. Standardized testing is driving everything and they're driving it to nowhere. There's, there's, no, there's nothing higher being pointed at than a score itself. That's so true. And I almost feel like there's a sanitizing effect, I guess, that, mm. that public government-run schools oftentimes work so hard to make everything neutral that that in and of itself becomes the God, if you will, right? We take God completely out of schools to a point where <laughs> non-secularism becomes yeah. What do you think about that? That, that? that is so well said. You know, I remember thinking about this, I, even when, when the kid who is like the most checked out, you know, I taught for 10 years, kid who's bored with everything. He's impossible. And I always hated that as a teacher. I, I was like, I wanted my students to be at least entertained and interested. But the kid who was most checked out, when you started teaching about like Marx or Hitler or Stalin, suddenly that kid becomes very dialed in. And I think the reason is that they're interested in questions about good and evil. You know, these are the questions that are at the heart of what it means to be a human. And we remove all of those things that are the most interesting, that are the most crucial to the human experience. We remove them from the classroom. And what do you get? You get a generation of students that are bored out of their minds because we're not talking about the things that actually matter. Uh, and so that's where I think a lot of public schools don't know what to do with CLT. I've been at a college before, you know, we went to a public university and we presented what we're doing. And look, at this point, we've got just this year, 30,000 plus kids who tested with us. And so colleges have a reason to adopt CLT as an option, but they looked at it and they said, well, we can't use this as an admissions test. You, you've got C.S. Lewis and, and John Paul the Great in this. And uh, I'm like, okay, th these are two of the greatest minds from the entire 20th century. And we're gonna exclude them because they loved Jesus or something. Like, what is the rationale? But he, this is, and this is a provost of a university. And he just thought that that's acceptable to say, you know, and it's just this, this incredible discrimination against people of faith, even though, you know, again, I, I think they're two of the greatest minds of the 20th century. And those should totally be some of the kinds of, of, of thinkers we want students everywhere to read. And you mentioned discrimination against people of faith. What were your thoughts on the Espinoza case that just came out? from the United States Supreme Court and kind of their take on, you know, if you offer education savings accounts, if you offer these things, you have to make them equally accessible. We've almost deferred so far from favoring faith that now we have disfavored it and kind of their take on that. Yeah, and, and I didn't uh, follow the details of the case, but I, I saw it as a win for school choice for sure and a lot of excitement around that. And it seemed where that's where the tide's headed. And, you know, it's interesting, you look at even the Supreme Court itself, and I think at the moment, six of the nine justices uh, had a faith-based private school education, um, whereas that's only the case for 15% of American students. You know, when you stop to think about, well, why, 
why would two thirds of the Supreme Court have sitting justices that went to faith-based schools? Well, the reason is because they're teaching students the, the concept of justice and right and wrong and natural law. And so there's no way we're limiting students so severely by keeping these conversations away from them. I'm curious when you mentioned that you taught and that the family is one of the critical pieces in that, how does a teacher foster that? How does the system foster that? Because one thing we hear so often is, you know, even if we had education savings accounts, what if parents don't care enough to use them? You know, what if they leave them in the public schools and they don't take that initiative? So what's the key around this to get community involved, families more involved in this? Yeah, I think that's such a crucial question. Uh, you know, so the, the story of American education is, is going from the most local level to the, the, the least local level, you know, and so we, we introduced, of course, the Department of Education in 1980. And think about this is all played out in COVID, where you had, you know, 150 years ago, basically a one room schoolhouse, no Board of Ed, no State Department of Education, no Federal Department of Education. And what's actually happened is it hasn't made anything better in the midst of COVID but it's created just massive bureaucracy. It's, it's trying to turn a massive ship, you know, somewhere. And so there's, look, school choice solves a lot of problems but the implementation, given the fact that we've all become so dependent uh, on, on federal and state, state involvement in, in this bureaucratic process. Um, there's a lot, there's gonna be tricky parts. And I, I think uh, no well-intended American citizen wants um, the students that already have things stacked against them to be disadvantaged by how school choice gets rolled out. Uh, I think it's a real need. And when I talk to anti-school choice people, they say, look, it's going to be the kid who is at a somewhat decent school that he's going to, that school is going to become a, a failing school and he's not going to have anywhere to go because his parents are not going to drive him across town to go to another school. Um, I think some of my friends in the school choice world, Corey DeAngelis, who you should totally have on your show, uh, you know, Lindsey Burke, they're probably going to have better, uh, you know, solutions than I would have. But what you do have going on is that part of the problem has been created precisely by removing education away from the most local level. And so when you create a Department of Ed and a State Department of Ed and a Board of Ed and a Federal Department of Ed, what that does is it ultimately families and local communities take less responsibility for education. Um, where it, you know, it used to be 150 years ago, and I, I'm convinced that the one-room schoolhouse was often offering a better education than you know, many contemporary 2020 government schools. Uh, and it was because you had such an, uh, a vested community and they weren't beholden to anything beyond themselves. I love that so much. You touched on natural law and our founder is a big one on that, Susan W. Gore, who founded Wyoming Liberty Group. And she talks about that a lot. So I'm curious to see what the connection with that to the CLT is and if how you foster that, why that's an integral part of a child's education. Yeah, what a, what a great question. Love that. Um, so in the beginning, the first chapter of C.S. Lewis is Mere Christianity. And he, he may be the most overused author on the CLT. Uh, I think we've had him on four or five different tests over the years. Um, he just makes a very kind of simple observation about the way people argue. And basically the way everyone argues about everything is that they're always appealing to some kind of invisible standard that we all know exists, you know, that we all adhere to, that we all acknowledge, even though we all violate it. Uh, he makes just a common sense argument for that. You know, what he's actually doing is he's just picking up on, on the work of Thomas Aquinas and other great theologians, but he's, he's putting it in, into language that any normal person can understand. 
Um, and so I think the, the reason you know, that matters is because there, there's a close connection between a sharp conscience, uh, the moral imagination, and how a student does in school, their desire to learn. You know, uh, the heart has everything to do with curiosity and imagination and responsibility. And, you know, we went from really, I, I think, from Plato and, and Aristotle and, and ancient Judaism, where all the way to Martin Luther King Jr., where the main focus of education was shaping the affections in the right way. Uh, Plato said that the object of education was to teach, was to, to learn to love what is beautiful. Uh, as, a, as a public school teacher, I remember I would always ask my students, especially the last couple of years, like, why are we even here? Like, what's the point of all this? And they would always say it's to get a better job. And then I would write up on the board, the object of education is to learn to love what is beautiful. And there was often like cognitive dissonance or like, what, what does that even mean? You know, because they had just kind of bought into this, this very utilitarian approach to education that you just get a job out of it or something. It's so much bigger than that. Um, yeah, so, so that concept, and you, know, you think right now, even, even a topic like philosophy or theology, I think if you ask a lot of public school students, what is theology? It used to be understood for generations and centuries as the queen of the sciences, right? It was the reason the university existed in many ways. Now most people can't even tell you what the word means. It's kind of how far we've come. Yeah, so one question I have for you. What kind of advice would you give to parents, I think like myself or maybe all of us here on this, even when I was in school 20 some years ago, we learned enough to take the test and then we were done with it. We, we never learned how to be well-rounded, adaptable people that could function in the real world. We just learned how to pass a test. <laughs> and now I see it, you know, with, with kids of our own, this is even worse. You know, what advice would you have for parents on that? And then the same thing, what advice would you give legislators to get us away from that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's another silver lining of COVID right now that I think a lot of folks are going back and they're kind of thinking these really basic things of like, what even is education anyway? Why do we do this? How can we rethink it and reimagine it? Um, you know, the, the digital age in particular has really changed. Like, for generations, institutions owned access to knowledge. The university owned access to knowledge. That's totally broken down in the digital age. You've got more on your smartphone than, than they have in the Harvard library uh, at this point. And so, you know, I think out of any industry that y'all probably deal with, uh, with all the policy work that y'all do, the disruption in the education sphere. So my advice is, is look at every, as many options as you can um, and be confident in, in your ability as well to be the best possible teacher. Parents, I feel like, have been so undermined. And I'm not saying jerk your kids out of public school immediately. I, I don't know that. But I, I do think wherever you send your kids, parents need to reclaim their position as, and I'm, I'm a Catholic, so I, I quote the catechism here, um, as the first and primary educators of their own children. You know, that doesn't change if you're a homeschool mom or if you send your kids to school somewhere. But it's, it's parents saying, I'm going to know what they're learning. You know, I'm going to be on top of it. This is my highest calling in life as a, as a parent. Is there in, because it's not just an academic formation. All education in many ways is religious education. All education is formative of the entire human person. And so for parents to have that kind of view of it, I think is, is super crucial. And um, yeah, in some ways, I, I'm honestly very grateful that, that we've had this period as a nation. Um, and maybe, you know, we'll look back in 30 years as COVID as the thing that saved America and saved American education. I think a lot of parents would, would tend to agree. I mean, there are so many people that have had a wake-up call as to what their children are learning. They just assumed they were doing good, but they didn't know what was going on. Yeah, 
yeah. and then they had to become the teacher they had a real eye-opening experience yeah yeah it's been surprising some of the, the tweets out there one from a gentleman i won't name his name but but talking about how they have to change what they're teaching because parents are in the room or because they don't know if parents are in the room that should set any parent's hair on fire that any teacher would have any reason to change what they're teaching because their parents are not in the room scary for sure yeah so on another note um what would be an example for parents of of something that you would get in a classical education versus where we're at now what's what's really the defining difference yeah, so I understand classical education, not even so much as like necessarily tied to the Western canon. A lot of people say classical education is just a Western canon. I think classical education at its heart and soul is born out of the idea that, that education means the shaping of the affections and the heart, you know, of the whole person. Um, and so um, just to give you some examples is how I've experienced it as a dad. So I'm pretty new to this, but, you know, we read every night before bed. We've got five kids. My oldest is now in high school. She's 14. My youngest is six months. So we kind of span the gamut, but my two boys, you know, that are seven and nine right now, um, I, I brought home Aesop's fables probably five years ago. And I was so shocked by the way, they, they immediately wanted to ditch kind of the new stuff that we were reading for Aesop's fables, which is 2,500 years old. You know, and we start reading the tortoise and the hare, all of these stories we all, all know, I think from childhood, you know, but the reason that they love them is because there's this 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 moral component to it, you know, um, you know the they they see the folly of being arrogant. The rabbit is just talking smack, and and they they love that because they see the truth in it, the power in it. And so, um, and I, I may at this point have forgotten the exact question that I was responding to, um, so I'll, I'll stop talking. Oh no, I think you covered it. I don't know that I had any more specific questions. I'm curious, you know, was there anything on your heart that we didn't cover? I think this is going to be really eye-opening for a lot of our listeners. Like I, we talked before this started, you know, Wyoming's a little behind the times with regard to choice. And we're very big on the bureaucracy and funding our public schools. And that's good to a certain extent, but like Mandy mentioned, I mean, a lot of parents are, their eyes are now wide open to how little their children knew that they thought they did or in what ways they were being taught. And so I'm just curious if there's anything else on your heart you wanted to share that we missed today, because I think our listeners are going to love this. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. And, and, uh, and the work that you're doing. Um, yeah, you know, it's been interesting just trying to get the message out there, uh, using Twitter to do that over the past eight months and, and uh, finding a way more receptive audience than I really ever imagined. Um, and it, it's kind of a weird thing to kind of go. And, and I also have felt really bad at times for the way that some people have been offended. Uh, but, you, you know, you can't, um, you know, I, I certainly don't exist to, to try to undermine and to make a public school teacher feel bad. Um, but I, I do want to raise awareness again, just how profound this disconnect is right now between mainstream education in America and really what, what kind of every previous generation before us has done and then draw the connection to the civil unrest, you know, that we're having right now uh, as well. When you, when you remove, uh, this was, was pretty powerful, but for the own, our own podcast that we're doing at CLT, our first guest was Dr. Robbie George. He's been a Princeton professor for 40 something years. Um, arguably he's the most influential conservative academic in America, but his best friend is Cornell West, who you could argue is the most influential progressive academic. And I was asking him about where that, the story behind that relationship. And he told me this beautiful story, the podcast will come out tomorrow, of, of being in a parking lot with Cornell 20 years ago 
and getting into a conversation about Aquinas and Kant and these great books and authors, they had a common ground. They may have disagreed with the authors, but they, they had a common starting point. And they were so, so riveted by these authors and this intellectual tradition that they could just spend time together talking in it. Uh, and right now, and I think in some ways in the, in the name of well-meaning, you know, multicultural education, I, I don't think these are ill-will people. Um, we've removed this kind of common heritage, you know, and with that, there's, there's tremendous uh, consequences. And we're, we're seeing that at, on a national level every night right now. Well, I have to tell you, I took your Twitter poll this morning and I selected that the truth is always offensive, at least to some okay. people. <laughs> I think that it has to win though. I think truth and goodness will always win. Even in that offensiveness, we do a lot with tornado messaging at our think tank and that offensiveness yeah. just can't get caught up in it. You have to be studying well, that truth and goodness. I, I had an outraged family member. All I did was I, 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 I tweeted that, that school choice has, uh, has support by, is supported by 80% of minorities. Mm -hmm. Then I said, but Kamala Harris does not support school choice. And I had an extremely offended family member uh, who was irate. Uh, and I said, all I did was state her own position on school choice. That's not, that, that's not slander. I mean, this is a, a crisis if we've gotten so far away from civil dialogue that we can't have a conversation, um, you know, without silencing one side, you know, for simply restating accurately the other side's position. So, so I, I, I want to be sensitive to that. And I've been, I've been really shocked, honestly, that like it's been, there's been such a receptive audience so quickly, um, you know, to the message we're putting out there. So, so thank you for taking that poll, uh, Cassie. I, I do appreciate it. Where can people follow your work? Where can they find out more about the CLT? Yeah, um, so uh, please follow, subscribe to our email if you go to the homepage, cltexam.com. Um, my own Twitter is at JeremyTate41. Again, uh, we have a, our own podcast launching very soon, so grateful if y'all can listen to that. Um, yeah, that's it. So Cassie, Mandy, both, thank you uh, for the work you're doing. Always really honored to get an invite. And uh, as the, the largest think tank in Wyoming, uh, I guess, is that accurate? We might be the only, are we, Mandy? <laughs> no, there's a couple others, but they're pretty small. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we want to we raise awareness on our end as well. So thank you all for the work and making education, you know, at the forefront of the things that y'all are thinking about right now. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Take care. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, once again, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy listening to these podcasts as much as we enjoy creating them for you. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast currently on iTunes and SoundCloud so you don't miss further episodes. And be sure to like us on social media. Until next time, Wyoming, happy trails.